really glad that uh, Craig prayed what he prayed this morning, that the strongest and most vocal opposition to racism ought to be from Christians. It ought to be from the church. And racism today is a scar on our nation and on our church. And I really believe that as Christians, listen, this is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. And racism uh, smacks flat in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we as a church uh, stand against it. And that is a message that every church ought to be proclaiming, that we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in the equality of who he loves, who he has created. And so uh, we just want to say, say that up front, and that is a message that you will continue to hear uh, from this pulpit. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for the privilege, the joy that we have to be in relationship with you. Father, we thank you for that amazing grace that extends to each and every one of us, every person of every creed and race and background and belief. And so, Father, we just uh, come before you as your people, as your children. I pray that you would uh, continue to work in our hearts, deal with uh, the prejudice that we all struggle with, because we're all broken. We're all, Father, under repair, under construction by your Spirit. And I pray that you would help us to be teachable, that you would uh, speak to us even this morning through your word as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a dark and dying world in desperate need of a Savior. And so, Father, I just uh, lift up our time together, uh, and we pray this, Father, in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Right now we're on a new series uh, entitled um, Route 66 uh, for the next year, starting actually in a couple of weeks. We're kind of laying the foundation right now this month, but we're going to be going through one book of the Bible every week for 12 months. And uh, we're looking forward to that. And uh, we're going to be starting, we're encouraging you to uh, read through with us uh, the entire Bible cover to cover in one year. We're encouraging our life groups to uh, take the material, take the questions, and, and uh, as a communal book, we're going to be uh, studying and applying God's Word uh, this next year in a different kind of way. We're kind of taking an overview uh, at 37,000 feet, flying over the entire uh, uh, Scripture, sort of like you go from coast to coast and see it all. And then we're going to dive down each week and take one passage from that book, unpack it, explore the meaning, the theme, and the application to our own lives. And so we're on a, a journey that I'm excited about. And uh, right now we are in, a, in the beginnings of kind of laying a foundation of why we believe what we believe and understanding the, the value of God's absolute truth revealed to us through his word. One of my favorite uh, TV shows uh, years ago that we watched as a family, it's still in reruns, but it's uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And you might remember watching that. The contestants were, were asked a series of uh, questions that each would increase in difficulty and each correct answer, the player would get a little bit more money toward that valuable $1 million prize. And if the player was ever uncertain about the answer, he or she could use one of three lifelines that were available. I'm convinced that uh, these three lifelines really symbolize for us the way that people think about the ultimate questions to life. Uh, for example, there's the 50-50 approach. Uh, some people hope they'll make it to heaven. They figure they got about a 50-50 chance and that they do enough things in this life, maybe, just maybe, they'll make it. They got about a 50% chance. Uh, then there's the I want to phone a friend approach. 
uh, to finding the answers of life. Some people do what their friends do. They think what their friends think. And so they're really counting on their friends to be uh, right about ultimate truth. And then the third lifeline is the, I think I'll ask the audience approach. Uh, this is the person that basically accepts the majority view. They accept the polls. They follow the polls. And if new age philosophy is in, well, there'll be new age philosophers. And if most people throw out absolute truth, then they will too. If 60% of our uh, nation basically rejects the whole idea of hell, well, they will too. And so the big question is, uh, what's your lifeline? Uh, what's the approach that you take? Where do you go for the answers to life's biggest questions? The past couple of weeks, again, we've been taking kind of a look at the reason why we believe this Bible, this book, is truly the Word of God. Why is it our standard? Why is it uh, our source of absolute truth? It can be relied upon. It can be trusted as the owner's manual of life. It is God's letter of love to us. Why do we believe that? Why do we hold that to be central? Some people call it the good book. It's definitely a good book, but it's really more of a guidebook. Uh, like a lot of good books, it might look good up on your shelf, but basically the, the Bible isn't meant to stay on your shelf. It has no shelf life. It's meant to be used and applied. It's more like the Thomas Guide map book that I have in my car. It's dog-eared. It's, 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 it's worn out from use. I use it all the time. Why? Because it basically tells me how to get from where I am to where I want to be. And that's what the Bible does. It's filled with God's truth. It's applicable to our lives. It's our guidebook for life. One of my heroes uh, was the great, uh, is the great Bible teacher and pastor, Chuck Swindoll. I, I worked for him back when I was in seminary, and he writes this. He says, if I could only wish one thing for God's people, it would be that all of us would, would return to the Word of God, that we would realize that his book has the answers. The Bible is the authority, the final resting place of our cares, our worries, griefs, tragedies, sorrows, and even surprises. It's the final answer to our questions. It's the final answer to our search. Okay, so how do we know this book came from God? You might have asked yourself that question on many occasions. Uh, how do we know uh, this is truly, I mean, it's a 2,000-year-old book. It was written by men, right? Fallible men. If the Bible shows us who God is, how can I know for sure that it can be trusted? How do I know it's reliable? How do I know it's trustworthy? Is there any evidence that shows that this book is any different than any other book? And the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, I believe that every Christian ought to really understand the four classical proofs for the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's word. Why? A couple of reasons. First of all, to build your own assurance and to deepen your own confidence in this book, that it truly is God's word, but also to answer the challenges, the opposition, maybe even the attacks on God's Word. God's Word is under attack today, now more than ever before. 1 Peter 3.15 states this, But sanctify Christ in your hearts, as Lord in your hearts. The word sanctify means to set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and reverence. If someone were to ask you, why do you believe this book? Why do you bet your life and your destiny on a 2,000-year-old book? What would you say? How would you respond? The first classic proof in the reliability of the Bible is the fact that the external evidence 
reveals the Bible as an historical book. That external evidence that we talk about simply means that the proofs of the reliability of the Bible are those that are outside of the pages of the Bible itself. For example, we have the number of manuscript copies and the short length of time between the original manuscript and the first copies of the New Testament. Let me explain. In fact, Bible scholar professor Dr. Norman Geisler puts it this way. He says, for the New Testament, the evidence is overwhelming. There are 5,366 manuscripts to compare and draw information from. And some of these date from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. To put that into perspective, there are only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. And that is the most famous book of ancient Greece. He goes on, no one doubts the existence of Julius Caesar and his Gallic Wars, but we have only 10 copies of it. And the earliest of those was made a thousand years after it was written. To have such an abundance of copies of the New Testament from dates within 70 years of their writing is truly amazing. Listen, God has preserved his book. The evidence is overwhelming. You know, why is it that God didn't uh, allow us to have the originals rather than copies? Even though those copies were within a generation, why don't we have the originals? Why didn't God preserve that for us? And that's a great question. One person suggests that we would probably worship the old document. I mean, this is Paul's actual parchment. He wrote it right here. And we would probably worship that rather than uh, uh, read and follow his living word. Funny how people are. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, Vernon McGee one time said, maybe that's why we haven't found Noah's Ark. If we found it up on Mount Ararat, what would we do? We would probably take it down, parade it down Broadway at Macy's Day Parade, and then afterwards build a shrine around it and worship the darn thing. I mean, people are funny that way. We pointed out a few weeks ago how the Bible was originally written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And so there are many people who have this idea that the Bible was passed down from generation to generation, from language to language, and somehow it got corrupted. It has errors in it. It has mistakes in it. And that is simply not true. Anybody that ever asks or tells you that, uh, say, well, show me one. <laughs> Usually people that say that have never read the Bible. Whenever a Bible translation is done, the translator always goes back to the earliest manuscripts, all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd century. And they always go back to the original language, back to Greek and back to Hebrew and back to Aramaic in order to translate it correctly and properly. On top of that, down throughout history, there, there is the extreme care uh, with which scriptures have been uh, copied. Uh, the earliest Jewish scribes, the Old Testament copyists, followed a very strict code when it came to copying uh, the scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, they have strict rules. Here's one of them. And let me give you a couple of them. First of all, only special black ink could be used. The scribe could not copy from memory. The scribe had to verbalize aloud every single letter and every single word as he wrote it. The scribe had to sit down in full uh, Jewish ceremonial dress. The scribe could copy only letter by letter, not word by word. They counted the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each, in each book. And if it came out wrong, they threw away the whole book. They threw away the whole scroll. In fact, they burned it. They knew the middle letter of the Pentateuch. That is the first five books, Genesis through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books. They knew the center letter, the middle letter, and they counted backwards and forwards to make sure that every letter, every word, every paragraph was counted correctly. And if not, they burned it. They threw it away. They started it all over again. 
Uh, after copying a scroll, they counted it backwards and forwards. The entire Old Testament, they knew the exact center, and they went from there, backward and forward, to make sure every single letter, if two letters touched each other, they threw it away and started all over again. Every letter, every word, every paragraph for centuries, copied down meticulously by the scribes. Documents could only be stored in a very sacred place. The entire document, again, would be invalid if just two letters touched each other. And old, worn-out documents were ceremonially buried. The painstaking process basically assured and contributed to the document's reliability and accuracy. God has preserved his book down throughout the centuries for generation after generation. We talked last week about the confirmation of places and dates basically by archaeology. The Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, were discovered in 1948, probably one of the most uh, famous archaeological discoveries of all time. Why? Why are the Dead Sea Scrolls so significant? Well, they date back before the time of Jesus, about a century or two before he comes on the scene, and they contain every single Old Testament book except the book of Esther. Several of us, uh, a couple of years ago, went down to L.A. and saw them on display when they were here uh, in Southern California. You see, before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest full manuscripts that we had that were copied dated back to about 900 A.D. It's about 900, almost 1,000 years after they were written originally. But what's truly amazing <laughs> is when they sat down and looked at the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we have today, they matched up nearly perfectly, about 5% a difference, and every single one, almost all of those differences had to do with scribal errors dealing with spelling of the words, which could easily be uh, and have been corrected. Almost no changes in a thousand years. God has preserved his book. What you have in your hand today is what they had in the first century. The Bible's historical accuracy that has been questioned repeatedly down throughout the years, again and again, archaeology and history has proved the cynic and the skeptic wrong. And we've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. I gave you example after example. Uh, we showed, for example, the existence of the Hittites, uh, the wealth of Solomon. We talked about the healing pool in Jerusalem, the, national, the fact that the nation Israel were slaves in Egypt, and that has been proved by the archaeological evidence there in Egypt. Um, also, the fact that David was more than just a legend like Paul Bunyan in the Blue Ox. Uh, he actually existed, and they have shown and proven that with the evidence that they have found. I could go on with hundreds of examples. Uh, there's plenty of research if you want to get into that. But the renowned Jewish uh, archaeologist Nelson Gluck summed, summed it all up. He said this, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Never. He continued his assertion of the incredibly accurate historical memory of the Bible, and particularly so when it is fortified by archaeological fact. And so archaeology confirms the places and the people that the Bible talks about, and that they were obviously historically accurate. This is not only true of the Old Testament, but also of the reality of more recent history of the New Testament. Archaeologists have uncovered and know about nearly all the places uh, that the New Testament uh, talks about as far as events and, and places. For example, today we can see portions of Herod's temple, the Areopagus, where Paul uh, basically spoke in Athens. We, we can see, you can go there today, the theater in Athens, where Acts chapter 19 tells us a, a riot broke out. You can see the pool of Siloam, where a, a blind man was healed in, in John chapter 9. These are, these are real places, historical places, that you can visit today. 
The book of Acts is a model of historical accuracy. One historian puts it this way. In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. Historian William Albright reminds us, discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a vital source of history. So the first classic proof is the fact that the external evidence uh, reveals the Bible as, a, as an historical book. Secondly, cl second classic proof is the fact that the internal evidence reveals the Bible as a unique book. Listen, you don't even have to basically study history and archaeology to, to discover as you read it that it's a very different kind of book. For example, the majority of the Bible is from eyewitness accounts. Uh, we all know the value of an eyewitness. I was on a jury a couple of years ago, and basically when a prosecutor calls someone to the stand who actually saw the events, there's a far greater chance of winning the conviction. That's obvious. But one key piece of evidence that historians look for in addressing the reliability of any document, any historical document, is the number of years, the number of generations that have passed uh, have been passed bef down before the story was actually uh, written down. In other words, is the information firsthand, or is it secondhand, or thirdhand, or 100hand? I mean, the events of the Bible were primarily recorded in the generation that they were experienced by those who experienced them. Now, the Bible's filled with eyewitness accounts. For example, Moses was there. He wrote about the fact that the, the, Red, the Red Sea parted. Uh, Joshua saw with his own eyes the walls of Jericho falling down. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the disciples stood uh, right there in the upper room with the resurrected Christ. And they, write, they wrote down what they saw. The Apostle Paul John, or John states, What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Listen, God has preserved his book. Josh McDowell sums it up. He writes this. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years in various places, stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. The human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life. Kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. It was written in a wilderness, a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands and in military battles. And yet it tells one story from beginning to end. God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. He says no one person could possibly have conceived or basically written such a work. So what's the difference between what we have here in, in the Word of God, the Bible, and, and basically other religious books? I mean, we have a lot of religious books today, don't we? What's the difference? Well, let's take a closer look. The Bible is translated from 24,000 copies, in part or in whole, of the New Testament alone, translated by thousands of scholars. Let me give you an example. The Book of Mormon, for example, uh, translated from a supposed single original that is claimed to have been seen and translated by one person, one man, Joseph Smith, who was no expert in languages. That original was taken back up into heaven, and so we don't have the original. We have one copy. The Bible was written by more than 40 authors spanning more than 50 generations and three continents. It speaks with absolute agreement on all things pertaining to our faith and doctrine. The Koran, on the other hand, was uh, writing, the, the writing and the record of, of one man, Muhammad, in one place at one point in time. It differs on so many historical points with both the Old and the New Testament. 
The Bible provides uh, God's distinctive solution for man's problem with sin. The Bible focuses on God's work in the actual time and space of verifiable history. Hindu scriptures tell us that all roads lead to Rome, so to speak. It focuses on stories of things that happened up there in the celestial realm somewhere that no person actually witnessed or saw. Listen, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the Bible is more than just an historical book. The Word of God, it says, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible is a living book, and God has preserved his book down throughout the, the, the centuries for every single generation. Floyd Schneider tells a true story about a Christian university student who had a roommate that was Muslim. As they became friends, their conversation turned to uh, their beliefs. And one day the believer asked the Muslim if he had ever read the Bible. And his Muslim friend said, no, have you ever read the Koran? He said, no, but it sounds interesting. Tell you what, let's read them both together. One week we'll read a, a chapter or a section out of the Koran, and the next week we'll read something out of the Bible, and we'll discuss it back and forth. What do you say? And the Muslim said, absolutely, let's do it. Well, the second term, the Muslim became a Christian. One evening late in the term, he burst into the room, and he shouted at the longtime believer, you deceived me. And the guy said, well, what do you mean? What, am, what are you talking about? The new believer opened his Bible and he said, I've been reading it through like you told me to, and I just read the words living and active. He grinned. You knew all along that the Bible contains God's power, and the Koran is just a book like any other book. And so the believer said, now I suppose you're going to hate me. He said, no, he's answered, but it was un an unfair contest. <laughs> Listen, if someone isn't sure, give him the Bible. Tell them to start reading in the book of John. I've known more than a few people in my life who came to Christ just simply by reading God's word. It became alive to them. God spoke to them. The Holy Spirit transformed them by just simply reading the word of God. I have a, Je a, Jehovah's, a Jehovah's Witness friend of mine who uh, one morning just decided, I, I'm just going to come before God. He started reading in the book of Acts of all things. And he, he didn't get to the second chapter before tears just ran down his face. He was convicted by God's Spirit, and he realized that the Word of God is true. And he turned from that cult and, and had a living, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Through the Word, there is power. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so the internal evidence basically reveals the Bible to be a unique book. Third proof is the fact that the personal uh, evidence re is revealed uh, in the Bible as a very powerful book. The, world, uh, the, the Bible is, a, is the world's first bestseller. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It was the first book ever published back in 1450. It has been translated in more than 1,800 languages. And thanks to the Jesus film, it's, it's, <laughs> hundreds are added every year. Uh, millions of lives, millions of lives have been changed, transformed down through the centuries because of this book. The truth of the Bible has changed my own life. I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, basically just the right word at just the right time from God's word gave me the direction or the peace that I needed at that time. When you need comfort, go to the Bible. <laughs> when you need direction, go to the Bible. When you need the answers to life, go to the Bible. I mean, Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and Oprah, they might have some good advice, but listen, they're not the Word of God. If you want answers, ultimate answers to life, go back to the Word of God. What does God have to say? He has the answers. Do some digging. Look for gold. Find the treasure. Your own personal testimony is just one of the four proofs 
that the Bible is God's word. People talk about how the Book of Mormon has changed their life or how the Koran has made a difference in their life or even a line from the Star Wars movie made a big impact on their life. But listen, those are subjective experiences and that's all well and good, but are they backed up with objective truth? The good news of the Bible is that it's not only objective truth, uh, but it's coupled with subjective experience. And you can see the facts uh, that stack up when it comes to archaeology and the historical evidence that proves that this book is reliable. We can trust in it 100%. You can bet your life on it. You can bet your destiny on this book. We, you can see the facts of uh, archaeology here, uh, your personal experience, uh, and the experience of billions of people down throughout the last 2,000 years. And uh, I believe human history uh, itself has been altered because of this book. A fourth and final proof is the fact that Jesus himself said the Bible is from God. Have you ever heard someone say, you know what, I, I trust what Jesus said, but I don't really buy the rest of it. I don't believe in what the rest of the book has to say. Well, I just want to say, listen, Jesus himself spoke with confidence about the Bible. And so if we trust what Jesus said, we have no truth, but basically to trust the whole Bible. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus recognized the Spirit as the author. On one occasion, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 43, he, he told the religious leaders, why then did the Spirit inspire David to call him Lord? Basically, Jesus is quoting what David said here and wrote in the Psalms, recognizing that it was the Spirit of God that moved David to write down what he wrote down. God uses uh, all the authors in that way. He uses their personality, he uses their experiences, he uses their styles to write down exactly the the, the, exactly what God wants them to write down. That's called inspiration. All, all scripture is inspired by God. Theonoustos, God breathed, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And so Jesus is quoting here uh, from the Old Testament. Secondly, uh, Jesus quoted the Bible as not only uh, coming from God, but also authoritative. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus told the Sadducees that not knowing the scriptures... Not knowing the scriptures was the reason they were living in error and without God's power. And Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus clearly tells us that God's word is not just history. It's not just poetry. It is to be obeyed. Why? Because it is authoritative. He stated in Luke eleven twenty-eight, 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Why? It's God's truth. It's God's absolute. It is God's authority. Thirdly, Jesus proclaimed its uniqueness. Jesus reminds us that the Bible is above all other books and all other writings. In fact, he told us that this book stands above everything that we've ever seen in the physical universe. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In John 10, 35, he declares, Scripture is always true. It is our source of absolute truth. Fourthly, Jesus called it the Word of God. He tells the religious leaders in Mark chapter 7, you are invalidating the Word of God. He's referring back to the Old Testament by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. You know, it's interesting that even though Jesus did not possess the original autographs, in other words, the original, the original documents actually written by Moses and by David and so forth, he nevertheless considered the manuscript copies that they had at that time to be the Word of God. That is a powerful and personal expression of the truth, uh, that it works to 
preserve and, 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 and uh, give out accurately uh, the Bible from generation uh, after generation. God has preserved his book. And finally, Jesus believed that people and the places in the Bible were real. He believed in the prophets. He believed in Noah. He believed in Adam and Eve. He believed in Solomon and Gomorrah. He believed in Jonah. What's interesting is the, those, four, those last four there, Noah, Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah, are found in the portions of the Bible that are usually under the most attack by skeptics who say that didn't happen. Well, Jesus said it did. If he said it, that's good enough for me. He believed it. The very parts that are doubted today are affirmed in the word by Jesus himself. John MacArthur writes this, the Bible is the, on, is, is the only complete trustworthy source of knowledge about God. Man can't learn all he needs to know about God from human reason, philosophy, or even experience. God alone is the source of the knowledge about himself, and he has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible and in no other book. Let me ask you personally, what changes has God made in your heart and life through this book? What changes do you want him to make in your heart and life through this book? We're on a journey to go through God's word, to explore it in a, in a deeper way, in a greater way. Not just for head knowledge, that's not as important as, it, as heart knowledge, to really know and apply it and live it out in our heart and life. How has this book shown you who God really is, and where do you need God to reveal himself even more through this book? We've looked at four tests, four proofs, real briefly this morning, of the Bible's reliability. And by every one of these four tests, the external, the internal, the personal, and the scriptural, the word of God clearly is God's revelation uh, to his people. And it is to be trusted and stood upon as the foundation of everything we believe regarding faith and practice. Two words I want you to remember and take away this morning, two words that are important to understand when we talk about the inspiration and the authority of God's word. The first is the word verbal. When we say verbal, we mean that God inspired the words, not just the ideas, not just the concepts. He, he inspired the very words. It is verbal. Uh, Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Second key word this morning is the word plenary. That's a fancy word. It simply means all, everything. God inspired all, not just the parts, we don't pick and choose when we get into God's word. It's not just uh, some of it is God's word and inspired and some of it isn't. We can't pick and choose. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, all of it is inspired. Theonoustos, God breathed and profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Psalm 18.30, for the, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Praise God for the gift that he's given to us in his revealed word. So when you hear someone say that we believe in the, the verbal, plenary uh, inspiration of God's word, now you know what we're talking about. Every word, every, every, everything in God's word. Now, now some books, some parts of the Bible might be more inspir inspirational to you personally, but that doesn't uh, negate the fact that it, uh, the, the whole Bible is inspired. It's all authoritative. And basically, it wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. It's for our benefit. All the precepts, all the principles of God's word is there for us. 
today. And it's just as applicable in the 21st century as it was the day that God inspired those authors to, uh, to write down exactly what he wanted them to write down. Augustine gives us a clear warning of the danger of our tendency sometimes to pick and choose. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. <laughs> Inspiration means God's word is our final authority. Psalm 119.9, how can a young person stay pure by obeying your word and following, following its rules? Psalm 33.4, for the word of, of the Lord holds true and everything he does is worthy of our trust. J.I. Packer defines authority as this, treat his words as having a decisive force in your life. Does it? Does the word of God have a decisive force in your life? Does it, does it, when you read it, do you want to do something with that and, and, and allow it to transform you and mold you and shape you into the image of Christ? He goes on and says, this means that whenever there's a conflict between what the Bible says and how I feel, or what I've been taught, or the opinions of others, or what seems reasonable to me, whenever I have a difference of opinion with the Bible for any reason, the Bible is always right. Who has to change? I do. God's word is eternal. Someone might say, well, that sounds kind of closed-minded to accept the Bible as the authoritative truth. But belief in the authority of the Bible is not closed-minded, it's right-minded. It's not closed-minded basically to say that a compass has only one true north. Or on a map there is only one geological location that is my destination. Basically, since God inspired the Bible, it's not closed-minded to say that it is the final say in our lives. Pastor and teacher Tim Keller writes this. He said, I've heard people say, I'm checking out Christianity, but I also understand Christians can't do this, and the Bible says you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love the poor, and you're supposed to give up sex outside marriage. I can't accept that, somebody might say. And so people come to Christ with a list of conditions. But the real question is this, is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory and life? And will knowing Christ fill your life with his goodness and power and joy so that you will live with him in endless ages and his life increasing in you every day? If so, if that's true, you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up sex or whatever. Let's say you have a friend who's dying of some terrible, terrible terminal disease. So you take him to the doctor and the doctor says, I have a remedy for you. If you just follow my advice, you will be healed and you will live a, a long and fruitful life. But there's only one problem. While taking my remedy, you cannot eat chocolate. Now what if your friend turns to you and says, forget it, no chocolate. What's the use in living? <laughs> I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I'm going to keep on eating chocolate. He goes on, if Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he can't just be a supplement. We have to come to him and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing, to you, I'm willing for you to start a, a complete reordering of my life no matter what. God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is our authority. It is what our foundation is for everything pertaining to life and godliness in Jesus Christ our Lord. May we hold that banner high. May we continue to be people of the book, people of the word, 
to, to, to allow it to transform our own hearts and lives and to, and to allow that to change others around us as we radiate the love and power and light of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God.